Uh, it's good to, good to be back with you. Uh, if you were here last week, thanks for coming back again for, for week number two. Uh, if this is your first week, uh, we uh, began a sermon series. It's a 12-week series in the, in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and so, uh, kind of before we really dive into it, I just want to uh, make known, we're going to have the, the passage up here to read, but I, I want to encourage our people to bring Bibles to church. Um, it's really, we preach the Bible here, um, so if, if that's not your thing, then, then we might not be the church for you, but we just, we open God's Word, um, we, we hear how He speaks to us from it, um, and if you don't have a Bible, we actually have one to give to you today, um, so I'll make mention of that. Um, they're on the back table there, um, but you'll be able to follow along today, but uh, just, just a heads up, we, we preach the Bible here. Um, so that's where we're at, but we are starting a, a 12-week series. It's called The Way of Paradox, Following the Right-Side-Up King in an Upside-Down World. And so what we're going to do over the next, now I guess, 11 weeks counting today, is look at different encounters that Jesus had with people in the Gospel of Mark. And so last week we, talk, uh, we looked at uh, Jesus' first encounter with his first followers, where he called them uh, the fishermen at the Sea of Galilee to follow him. And so uh, this week we're actually going to pick up right where we left off and, and look at the very next narrative uh, in, in Mark chapter 1. So if you, if you do have a Bible, we're going to be in Mark chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be getting in verse uh, 21 today. Uh, today's passage, uh, I mentioned this last week, um, but uh, Mark is an extremely fast-paced writer. You'll notice that he uses the word immediately all the time, and we're going to see that in today's passage. And so today we're going to look at a passage, and it's actually uh, one full day. It's, it's a full 24-hour period with a little bit of the morning hours involved uh, that has five different events going on. So it's, it's just this prime example of the way that Mark writes in a very speedily, kind of um, quick fashion. He really wants to get to, to what he's talking about. So that's, that's the passage for today. So let's, let's look at God's Word. I'm going to read uh, Mark chapter 1. Uh, it's a little bit of an extended reading today. It's about 18 verses, so hang in there with me. Um, this is uh, God's Word for us today. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 21, and I'm going to go down through verse 39. So let's attend to God's Word. And they, it's the followers, went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he, it's Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him? And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also. 
for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Let's ask God to bless the reading and preaching of his word. Father God, we, we know that our hearts are finicky. Uh, they're prone to wander. Lord, we're distracted. It's the weekend. We're thinking about football and all kinds of other things uh, that are vying for our attention. Uh, but Lord, we long to hear from you. And so Lord, I pray that you would that you would soften hearts, that you would sharpen minds, that you would give ears to hear the word that you have for us today from, from your word, and that you would be pleased in our gathering, and that you would perhaps even bring those who have yet to believe uh, to come to believe in, in your Christ, our Savior, your Son, Jesus. And we ask these things in his matchless name. Amen. Put a stopwatch on this sermon. You know, that, that doesn't really mean much, but just, just how long I've been talking for. So, uh, um, uh, I'm reading through the Chronicles of Narnia with our young children. Uh, Chronicles of Narnia, the famous one, is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Our boys are almost six and just turned four. Uh, I thought it was a bit ambitious to read it. You know, the volume, we've got all of the different um, books within that series in one book. But the boys have just really enjoyed it. Um, so just by a way of side note, your children can absorb more than, than you often give them credit for. But, but we've been reading through um, the Chronicles of Narnia, and we got through the second book, the, the famous one, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. We finished it yesterday, and uh, the boys were just loving it. We ended up watching the movie afterwards, uh, which was, was great fun. But in, the, in one of the last chapters, um, I think it's entitled uh, The Deeper Magic and the Dawn of Time. So it's one of the last chapters. Aslan uh, is talking about the deep magic. If you haven't read it, a little bit of a spoiler alert here, but you've had plenty of time to read this. It's been around. So um, uh, the, the deep magic is the law of the land that rules Narnia. And so the deep magic is the law of justice and truth. And the deep magic is the law that the, 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 the witch of Narnia, the white witch, is actually demanding a, a, a someone's blood. It's demanding the blood of Edmund, who's been a traitor. Uh, he's been a traitor. And so Aslan, in this last chapter, he goes on and he talks about the deeper magic. So the deep magic is the, the law that rules the land, but the deeper magic is something that only Aslan knew about. And I, I pulled this quote out. Uh, let me read it. It's a little long, but it's not too long. This is Aslan talking about the deeper magic. He says, It means that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. At this point in the book, Aslan has begun to thaw Narnia. Narnia is this winter wonderland that is always winter and never Christmas. And so as Aslan speaks, he's thawing out Narnia because he's on the move. And it's really a depiction of death itself working backwards. Today, as we look at the passage, uh, we are going to be reminded of the evil and the suffering that surrounds us. It surrounded this culture that we're going to read about. It surrounds our culture today. And some of the questions that I hope will tug on our hearts are questions like this. What would it look like if God's kingdom came in its fullness right now? If God's kingdom fell on us right now, what types of things would we imagine would happen? I imagine a large part of our answer would be that things around us would start to change. The evil would be undone. Sadness would be made right. Sickness, death, those types of things, and that's certainly true. 
But today's passage, Jesus is actually going to point us not only to how he's making things out there right, but he's also making things in here, in our own hearts right. That Jesus came, and he came to bring God's kingdom, as we talked about last week. And the, the way that God's kingdom is working today is actually not from the outside in, it's actually from the inside out. So that's the way of paradox that we'll look at today. There is no aspect of our lives that has not been touched by evil and suffering. Whether it is personal and close or whether it is distant and in the news, every aspect of our lives has been touched by evil and suffering. So today, we're going to encounter Jesus. We're going to encounter the king, the right-side-up king, who alone can conquer and dispel evil and suffering simply by a touch and a swift and powerful word. So here's how I want to look at um, today's passage. We're going to look at um, three things. We're going to consider the king's teaching in verses 21 down through 28. Then we're going to look at the king's touch in verses 29 through 34. And then we're going to consider the final touch in 35 through 39. So let's consider uh, first the king's teaching uh, in verses 21 through 28. If you remember last week, uh, we kind of set the scene. The context was at the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Jesus had called these men out of their fishing um, business, and he had called them to follow him. Well, the, the scene remains the same, that they're just a little bit further north up in uh, Caperne- Capernaum. And Mark, he, he chooses this odd, seemingly uncomfortable miracle to open up his gospel with. So different writers, for instance, John chose the wedding at Cana where he turned uh, water into wine. Jesus turned water into wine. That was the first miracle recorded in John. Well, Mark chooses this exorcism. He chooses this demon-possessed man, his teaching, and then the healing of a mother-in-law and then also a group of people to open up his gospel with. Now, I know I'm speaking to a Western-minded American people. And I know stuff like this is extremely uncomfortable, awkward, and we really don't know how to handle passages like that. And so to kind of, before we dive into what exactly Jesus is going on, I want to really just confront a couple of dangers that we can do when we look at a passage like that. There's a couple of things we can do when we see evil in its face, like we're going to see today, and they are these. One, we can just ignore it. We can ignore it or try to scientifically explain it away. Or two, we can concentrate on it. Right? We can just focus on the evil that's around us and how it's, it's taking over and, and we kind of live in this fearful frame uh, of our lives. Well, I want to suggest a middle way where we don't ignore it or explain it away and we don't focus on it, but we actually see the purpose of why God gave it to us in his word. And the purpose is this. The purpose is that God is bringing a kingdom. We talked about that last week. God is bringing a kingdom and Jesus has said, I'm the king of that kingdom. And even in worldly affairs, when someone tries to take over a kingdom, the enemies will arise, right? And so here Jesus is on the scene, and we'll see that this demon knows who Jesus is, and the enemies arrive. And so Jesus is the king who's come to conquer a land, and the enemies are coming up. And so what we'll see is is that there's something particular and historical going on here, that in Jesus' ministry, these people are identifying that he is the coming king, And so something extraordinary is going on that might not happen in our everyday lives. But uh, the the thing, the the big idea between this, uh, in this opening scene, is that we see that the enemy has some power. He holds sway, but King Jesus has the scepter. We see that the enemy has some influence and authority, but we see that Jesus triumphs and conquers over that authority given to him. 
So the scene is set in Capernaum. Uh, Jesus, like any good Jewish rabbi at the time, shows up on the Sabbath day in a synagogue. And so they're in Capernaum, and they go on the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath was Saturday for the Old Testament Israelites. It would have begun on Friday at sundown and ended at Saturday at sundown. So that's the time frame. We're at Friday, Friday night. This is probably Saturday morning when they would have gone to the synagogue. Okay, so Jesus shows up at the synagogue. Now, the synagogue was not the main place of worship for the Israelites. That was the temple. So the temple in Jerusalem is where all of the animal sacrifices and all of the provisions for the priesthood would have taken place. The synagogue was kind of the local chapters where people could worship. It was the the, the local church buildings or or the school dining halls, if you will, where local believers gathered when they wouldn't make the the trip to Jerusalem every, every Sabbath. And so here Jesus, being the good rabbi that he is, observing the Sabbath, going to the synagogue, arrives as a guest. Now the synagogue was a lay-led ministry, okay? So it was a church gathered just like this, and it would have been led by lay leaders. Some of them identified as scribes here. These scribes would have just been the theologically astute and informed people in that local synagogue. And so they would have done the teaching, the primary teaching. But when a guest showed up, like Jesus on this instance, he would have given priority to, to speak. And, and that's exactly what happens. Uh, many of the other gospel accounts talked about how this was Jesus' ordinary practice, that he would go into the synagogues proclaiming himself as the Messiah. And so here he shows up and he gives this teaching with authority. Now, Mark doesn't tell us what he taught, and I think that's for a reason. He doesn't tell us what exactly it was that astonished and amazed these hearers of his teaching. He just says that they, were, they walked away from that sermon as it were, amazed, astonished. This man teaches not like the scribes. Now, that's not a a backhanded slap against the scribes. The scribes were good men. They were doing aptly what God had told them to do. And what they did was they would have taken the Old Testament Torah, the law, and they would have just applied it to the life. So they would have showed what God's law said and showed how they're to put it into practice. Well, Jesus apparently does something completely different. In fact, I think what he does and what we'll see when this man comes into their congregation is that he's showing that he's much more than a doctrinal teacher. He's a deed teacher. So he's, he's combining the substance of the teaching along with the, the priority in the life. And he does that by showing us as a man comes into their congregation, uh, kind of, uh, he brings in a bit of a, a fuss, right? If you look at the, the passage, After this teaching and after they've uh, been amazed at what he had to say, uh, verse 23, a man with an unclean spirit shows up. He comes out, he says, what have you to do with, with us, Jesus of Nazareth? He identifies him, he knows who this teacher is. And uh, Mark, uh, you know, he, he describes, there's two ways that he describes demon-possessed people. He uses the word in our passage today, unclean spirit, but he also uses the word demon-possessed. So there's these two words. But what Mark is doing is he's showing on the front end of his gospel the power that Jesus has over everything. And so these words, both demon-possessed and the unclean spirit, only show up in the first half of Mark's gospel. Again, I think Jesus is trying to show us something. He shows us that there is this kingdom conflict that's taking place. King Jesus has showed up on the scene, and the dominion of Satan has recognized it. And here they are, face to face, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, with the, the minions of Satan himself face to face, And Jesus simply rebukes the authority. When a new king arrives, the enemy shows up in full force. Um, 
I don't know, I think you're like me, so I, I make this assumption a lot of times when I'm preaching, but when I think about evil, and I think about the things like this that take place in the Bible, I quickly run to the evil that's out there, right? I mean, we live in a culture that is, has access and instant uh, uh, access to all events around the world. Nothing escapes our minds, uh, except for what the, the media chooses to tell us and not to t- tell us. But, but we, we know what evil looks like. We've seen it personified. We've seen it acted out. We live in the midst of that. And I think we need to be careful because I think what this passage is actually showing us is, is not so much that Jesus is addressing the evil out there, although he is, but he's beginning to address the evil in here. He's beginning to address the evil that actually dwells within our own hearts. And we'll see as he concludes this passage, because he wants to proclaim the coming of the kingdom, that he's showing us that he's the king not only of the evil out there, but he's the king of the evil in here. And so this is the astonishing and the amazing thing about King Jesus here, is he is addressing something that appears to be on the surface Uh, something that we cannot engage in. Now, oftentimes, and this is how our our culture explains away instances like this, we want to say that this man had some sort of psychological episode that he could have overcome, and we want to medicate or, or kind of counsel that away, but the Bible appears to show us that this was an actual demon with actual authority over an actual man, and Jesus trumps him. Jesus stops him in his tracks. This is the king's teaching. Let's consider the king's touch in verses 29 down through 34. Uh, we lived a short stint, I guess over my preaching time, you're going to know everywhere I've lived. We lived a short, last week I told you we lived in New Orleans. This week, I'll tell you we lived in Jackson, Mississippi. So we, were, we did a little tour of the south. And uh, when we were in Jackson, Mississippi, that's when I was going to school. I was at seminary there. I did a pastoral internship. And there were several moments in that internship that really shaped me. It was kind of those defining moments in life. And, and I want to share one of those with you. Um, as a pastoral intern, you do any and everything everybody asks you to do, uh, but along with that, you have a, a checklist of things you just have to do. Um, so one of those things that I had to do was a lot of hospital visits. Um, it's fairly uncomfortable to do hospital visits, uh, but one of these that marked and shaped me was a hospital, to, uh, hospital visit to a woman named Joan Berry. I was, um, you know, fresh, wet behind the ears in seminary. Our pastor took me along with him to do this, this visit, and I was just fretful of what was going to happen. I, you know, comfortables are not comfor- or hospitals are not comfortable for everybody, and they certainly aren't for me. So I show up just unaware and just not sure exactly what's going to happen. And we walk into this woman's room. Our, our pastor, Steve Lanier, had actually um, kind of prepared me, told me what was going on. This woman had been battling cancer for years. Um, it had just been persistent in her life, and it, it appears she was at the end of her at the end of her battle, and it proves to be that she was. Uh, but we, we we come into the hospital, and it's um it's a, it's around. I couldn't pin whether it was Mardi Gras or whether it was St. Patrick's Day. Either way, you, you get where I'm headed with this. But we come into this room, and I kid you not, this woman is decked out in party gear. She's got a hat on. She's got beads on. She is like living it up. And so immediately I'm like, okay, I can do this. Like, this, is this how hospital visits go? Um, you know, and Steve warned me, this, this will not be an ordinary visit. But we come in and this woman is partying in the face of death. She's almost mocking it. It almost seemed blasphemous to me. Like, you know your days are coming to an end and you're acting like this? And we went on and we prayed with her and she was just sharing her love for Jesus. And, and we left that place and, 
Steve told me, he told me, you know, she's, she's just ready to be with Jesus. I mean, she's fought the good fight and she's ready to go home. And it was in that moment that I just began to see um, what it meant to be touched by the king. And she wasn't touched in a healing way. He did not heal her. This woman died. I think it was um, probably less than a week later because I remember participating in her funeral. But this woman was touched by the king and because she was touched by him, not in just a physical way, but in an inside way, she could party and mock death in the face. That's what she was doing. We look at the second part of our narrative and uh, the the scene shifts from the church, not the synagogue anymore, now we're at someone's house. Okay, so we go to Simon and Andrew's house. These were the fishermen that Jesus just called to follow him. We go to Simon and Andrew's house, and this was their hometown. Uh, we are told immediately that their mother-in-law has gone sick with a fever. Now, to us, that just sounds, okay, that's a day off of work. A fever's not a big deal, but a fever was a big deal in that culture. People died if they couldn't get the right um, you know, medicine or treatment or, or care or know what was going on. It was a symptom of, of coming death. And so not only was it, was it that, but it was also a symbol in this culture of demon possession or even of cursed and punishment by God. And so this fever was no ordinary thing, but the way the text and the narrative reads it, it appears just so ordinary. Look at verse 30, it says, Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with the fever, and immediately they told Jesus about her. And Jesus came and he took her by the hand, and he lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. It's just that simple. I mean, you you almost see the delicacy of the king's healing touch right there, right? He takes this woman and she's healed. And so Jesus begins to show his sovereignty, his kingship, his authority over the body. But it goes on more as the Sabbath day winds down. Uh, You see, for the Sabbath observer, for the Jewish of that day, they would not have been able to do uh, citywide healings. Uh, It would have been against the the strict law observance for them to leave their homes. And so we see, and Mark duly notes, that the the day has come to an end, verse 32. That evening at sundown, they began, the word had spread. Jesus' fame has gone throughout the city. And so at sundown, they begin gathering these people around Simon's house. Now, the way this house would have worked is it would have had a, instead of our, our front doors kind of um, open to the, at least in the suburbs, they open to the street, right? We have houses and all our houses kind of look the same and they all open to the street and we all hide in them. You know how the suburban life lives, right? <laughs> Not so much in this culture, okay? So this house would have actually had a, a, an interior door that opened to this this um, this open hallway of sorts uh, uh, where all of the hustle and bustle of town would have been going on. And so people would have been had access to that. And so Jesus apparently just had to go to the door, to that interior door that opened to the, to the hustle and bustle of the city, and people were coming. Now, let's get the picture. What kind of people were coming? Well, they were sick people. They were demon-oppressed people. They were people that uh, could find no healing. And in this culture, that was simply unacceptable. They were oppressed they were lame, they were outcasts, they, didn't want, they, they had no association with the common world, and here they come to Jesus' door, they come to his feet. The whole city was gathered, and verse 34, Jesus healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Sickness and suffering are a part of our everyday experience. 
and the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is not that God promises to heal them from us all, for all of us from them. He doesn't. What he's doing here, and in every instance thereafter, is he's pointing us to the coming kingdom. He's showing us what kingdom life will be like. He's showing us that there is this tension between what is true now and what is coming for us. There is this already nature that God has come in Christ and he is ruling right here, right now, through his church on this world. Does God heal people? Yes. Can God heal people? Yes. Absolutely. We pray for healing all the time. But that is not the promise of the already. The promise of the not yet is the coming kingdom. And we'll kind of close with this in in a few moments here. But the promise is that Jesus has showed not only his authority over it, but his willingness to be rid of it. And that's exactly where we're headed as believers. And so the, 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 the longing that we should feel today, the tension that I hope that you feel with me is for a better kingdom. I hope that you long for a better king. If you are putting your trust in the princes and rulers of this world, they will fail you. If your hope and your dream and your vision for your life is in our next president, I promise he or she will fail you. But Jesus won't. And so Jesus is coming and he's setting up his kingdom now. He's inviting us to come into the kingdom now, to sit under his authority as the king now, so that we would look forward to the coming kingdom in its fullness. This is the king's touch. It shows us our weakness. It shows us our frailty. It shows us our neediness. But perhaps the best part is the final touch in verses 35 down through 39. Um, The overarching idea of Jesus coming and him establishing his kingdom and showing us what's to come is that he is showing us that in God's kingdom, broken people are restored. That in God's kingdom, broken people are made whole. That in God's kingdom, those who are broken in spirit are made whole in life in him. And so what my suggestion is, the the point that Mark is showing us here is, is actually not to primarily deal with physical sickness and physical evil. I mean, Jesus did that. He rebuked it. He rebuked it with his teaching. He rebuked it with his word. He rebuked it with his touch. But his primary concern is actually not the physical healing that we need, It's actually the spiritual healing that we need. Where did I get that idea from? Look at me at that following uh, verse, um, verse 38. Um, So his disciples come out. Jesus often left early, right? They would wake up. These guys are sleeping in and Jesus is gone. So where was Jesus? Oftentimes he was out praying in desolate, dark places to his father that his will would be done. And so here's no exception to the case. The followers go out. They find Jesus. He's praying and they say, uh, Jesus, everyone's looking for you. You know, this great crowd, you're doing these healings. What are you doing out here? And Jesus doesn't say, let's go heal some more. He doesn't say, let's just go find more of the demon oppressed and take care of them now. Verse 38, what does he say? Let's go to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And so in that statement, in my mind, is an indicator that Jesus' primary concern is not our physical condition, but it's our spiritual condition. That his primary concern is not that we feel well, but that we are well. And so here, uh, Jesus moves on to do what he came to do, is to preach. 
Last week in verses 14 and 15, if you have your Bible, you can glance up there. Jesus told us what he came to preach. He came to preach uh, the coming of the kingdom, that in Jesus, the kingdom has come and the time is fulfilled right now. And then he told us how to enter into that kingdom, to repent and to believe, to turn away from what we're trusting and to trust in the coming king. That's what he told us last week. That's what he's going to go on to these next towns and tell them to do. Jesus, um, he frequented synagogues. Uh, he, was, he was a churchgoer. That's where he went. Um, he went there to address some of the evils that had um, come up in synagogues, some of the mistreatment of God's word. Uh, all of us are familiar, or some of us may be familiar with the way that Jesus confronted religious type of people and how their traditions and their commandments uh, were held up above God's word and what he actually said. But one of the, the premier examples of Jesus pointing to our spiritual need is actually found in Luke's gospel. You don't have to turn there, but in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in the synagogue again. And in Luke chapter 4, they hand him a scroll. Old Testament was in scrolls. And Jesus opens up that scroll, and he goes to a particular verse, and it's a verse that's in Isaiah chapter 61. Let me just read uh, the way that Luke records it, because it's, it's simply astonishing. Jesus opens this scroll, and he reads this verse from Isaiah chapter 61. This is in Luke chapter 4, if you're flipping. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Did you hear that? So, So Jesus says why he came. He uses the Old Testament to say, this is what I came to do. He came to give good news to the poor, proclaim liberty to captives, sight to the blind, liberty to those who are oppressed. That's what he came to do in order to proclaim favor on God's people. But the most profound thing about that passage is actually not what he said, but it's what he didn't say. If you look in Isaiah chapter 61, the rest of that verse says this. It says that, on the day of the vent of vengeance of the Lord. And so Jesus leaves out the anger and the wrath of God that was attached to that statement. Now, those people would have known that that was attached to that verse. And why is that so profound? Well, the reason that's so profound is because the only reason that Jesus could leave out the day of vengeance for his hearers is because he withstood the day of vengeance. The only reason that that passage could be good news to the captive and the oppressed is because Jesus was broken and oppressed on their behalf. And so that's actually what this entire passage is pointing us to do today, is that Jesus withstood the day of evil and suffering for us. It's exactly what Aslan was describing as the deeper magic. The deeper magic is how death starts working itself backwards. And the way it starts working it backwards is for a willing substitute to go in the place of the condemned. That's what the good news is to us, brothers and sisters in Christ, is that God became a man as a substitute for us because we could not do it for ourselves. And today, in our entire service, we lift up Jesus because he came to do what we couldn't do for ourselves, namely to work death itself backwards. And so beginning with his life, ending with his death, and finally conquering with his resurrection, Jesus began to work death itself backwards. Um, I know your lives are filled with evil and suffering. They're personal. I know there is 
infertility that continues to haunt you. You see children. You see uh, happy families, and you want that. I know that your life has been touched with psychological and emotional things that only you understand. I know that your life has been, you've seen things that you didn't want to see. I know you've participated in things that perhaps you didn't want to participate in. I know that you long for the coming kingdom because God has put it in your heart. And so the way I want to close today is just give us a vision of the kingdom. The vision is described to us in Revelation chapter 1, uh, chapter 21, sorry. Revelation chapter 21, it's that obscure book that many people have, interpre- uh, have trouble interpreting, but there is a very plain reading of the scripture, and, and that's no exception in the case of verse uh, chapter 21. The apostle John writes this vision of the coming kingdom. He talks about the coming of a new heaven and a new earth, and he puts it this way. He says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is the vision that God gives us of the coming kingdom. This is the vision of the king that he has shown us, that nothing can thwart his plan. There is no death. There is no sickness. There is no evil spirit that can conquer King Jesus. He's the king. He's on the move. Be encouraged. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it's difficult for us to... um, to be in, in the muck and the mire of our lives. We, we're struggling to make ends meet. We're trying to be good parents. Uh, we try to be good workers. Um, Lord, but when we're honest with ourselves, we know the depravity and, and the darkness that dwells even within our hearts, even if we mask it well. Um, but Lord, what we've seen today and in, in the good news in the gospel is that you're the king of, of not only the evil out there, but you're the king of the evil in here. And so Lord, I pray that you would that you would even bring that evil to light uh, to ourselves today, that, that you would draw people to the Savior and that they would run to him and that they would find healing in him and that they would apply the balm, the healing balm of the gospel um, to the hurt and the brokenness that is in their lives. And we ask all these things in, in Jesus' name. Amen.